Hello and welcome to 20 Tim Minutes, a podcast that focuses on mental health in a serious but yet humorous way. Listen as I interview a wide variety of guests where we show our support as well as sharing our own personal struggles and stories with mental health. I am your host, Tim McCarthy, and now it's time to talk about it. Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're tuning into another episode of 20 Tim Minutes. I am your host, Tim McCarthy. Today, we have on former U.S. Marine, former MMA fighter, and junior Olympic boxer. He had a long battle with bipolar disorder, alcohol, and drug addiction with multiple suicide attempts. He is a mental health advocate and is here today to share his story of strength and courage, as well as making sure that people who are suffering are not alone. Today, we welcome on Tim Lodgen. How are you, Tim? I'm doing great, brother. I'm so glad we could finally connect and uh, reach one more person because that is my goal, sir. Yep. And I'm glad that you have you on. You're the first and hopefully the only Tim that I have on. You're going to hold that distinction probably quite some. There's like a lot of Tims, but you don't really run into a lot of Tims if you if you catch my, like, if you pick up what I'm putting down. Dude, I, I, I literally maybe a handful in my time. Seriously. Yeah. I had like one good friend and he was a Timmy and I was like, oh, thank Christ that he's the Timmy and I'm the Tim. Well, that's funny because people at the gym call me Timmy. I'm like, why? Yeah. Oh, you're very friendly. You come up to everybody, talk to everybody. I'm like, okay, I get it. Yep. That works. No one's ever called Timothy, I feel like. I feel like it's just a little bit too much to be called Timothy. Just by my mom. Yep. Yep. <laughs> when you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, how did I get my name? Because I named you after St. Timothy out of the Bible. I'm like, okay, yep. fair enough. Oh, man. Well, I start off with all my guests with this. What does mental health mean to you, sir? Wow. So now um, mental health for me is a balance mentally, spiritually, and physically. Um, I believe having all three of those gives you a a more balanced life. Um, I've struggled with bipolar since the age of 14. I didn't really get diagnosed until the age of 21. And, you know, they put me on a bunch of medicines and and the stuff never worked. I'll get into that into more of my story. But so I always thought that there was something wrong with me and I kind of just, I used it as a crutch for a very long time. It wasn't until I got sober and went to rehab and started working on myself and, you know, learning the steps and traditions of of recovery that I realized that, you know, mental health for me is um, I'm finally happy now. And I, I love myself. And I, I'm more able to, I was able to change that perspective as far as why are things happening to me when I finally now know that things are happening for me. And it allows me to accept that I have bipolar, accept that I have to take a pill in the morning to keep me, you know, balanced. Um, for a very long time, I, I was that guy that, why do I got to take a pill just to feel like you? Why do I have to see the doctors just to feel like you? Um, you know, what's wrong with me? Well, if I had high blood pressure, I'd have to take medicine because I had blood, high blood pressure. If I had cancer, I'd have to go get chemo treatments or take the medicines. I have a disease that I have to take a, a, a pill for that helps me to be able to regulate my emotions, my thoughts, and that's okay. I have become at peace with myself. And for that, that makes me completely happy with what's going on. And I think I was picked to carry this. Now, it's not a burden. It, it's it's a gift to me because now I can be able to reach people and talk to people and let them know that it's okay to not be okay sometimes. Yep. And we can live the life that we've always wanted to live. How do you, you said it earlier, um, just a minute ago, when you talked about like you would take medication if you had chemo or something. When I had therapy, I kind of brought that up in a different light. Cause I was the same way with like taking pills and I would be like, well, back in the day of like John Quincy Adams, like those people had mental illnesses and they didn't take medication. They just had to deal with it. So I felt like that's how I was supposed to be in this world. But then they brought up the example of like, well, you need a prescription to see with like your glasses and stuff. It's like people need, it's like an evolution thing. So I was like, okay, I feel a little bit better about that, but I was very stubborn about taking pills as well. I think it's a Tim thing. Dude, I, I hated it. I, I literally, I was like, I, I would, I would do the whole take it for, 30, 60, 90 days and be like, I don't need this shit. And I'd stop taking it and I'd have a crash a month or two later. And then have to go back to the doctor and well, why'd you stop taking it? Cause I was feeling good. You mean it was working? Oh, okay. oh, I guess it was. Okay. You yeah. know? And, uh, that was my life from the age of 21, all the way up until I went to rehab on and off, on and off. Um, none of, none of the shit ever worked, but 
is because I was drinking and drugging. So it, none yeah. of it was ever going to work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, before we go into the bipolar thing, how do you find self-love? You brought that up a second ago as well. I feel like that's a real hard thing for people to find out is like a lot of people self-deprecate. I'm one of them. I feel like if I'd answer that question myself, do I love myself? I think to a point, I like my, I really like myself. I don't think I love myself yet, but I really like myself. How does someone find like self-love? Acceptance and forgiveness. Um, I've accepted that I have a lot of shortcomings in life. Um, I have always held myself to a, a higher standard than most people. I have always tried to achieve perfection, no matter what I've done. Um, sports or, or life or jobs. I've always had to be the best at what I was doing. Um, and when it didn't happen, I, I would beat myself up to, to a pulp. Like, I'm not good enough. I, I should have done this. I should have done that. Now I, I accept the fact that I am not perfect. And it is not about perfection. It's about progress. And once I learned that, um, I was able to start loving myself. I used to hate that person looking back at me in the mirror, man. I truly, I would go sometimes weeks without even looking up in the mirror um, because all the shitty things I did to my family and my friends and, yeah. and uh, how I treated people and how manipulative I was. And, and I was just a scum, dude, you know, lying, cheating, stealing. And forgiveness is huge for me because I, I, I never forgave anybody i would always hold a grudge and I'm, I'm glad i'm not now but i was a i've been a violent person a lot in my life and that was my first resort i'm just gonna punch him in his fucking mouth and knock his teeth out and that was what i went that's how i reacted and now i'm i do not allow anybody or anything to affect my own emotional well-being you said you were dealing with bipolar since the age of 14. You got diagnosed later. How would you explain bipolar to someone that doesn't know what it is? I have a love and hate relationship with it. Yeah. Okay. The the upside, the manic moments, I truly believe helped me in sports. Okay. Because I was able to work longer. Um, train harder, achieve more than most people on my team. If I, I got paid baseball, I wasn't just a pitcher. I was an all-star pitcher for the county. I played football. I was the all-star running back for the county. Boxing, I just wasn't on a local boxing, boxing team. I, I won golden gloves, went to the Junior Olympics. Like I always excelled at that. But if I lost a match or if we lost a game, it was my fault. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody else, screw the other, you know, 20 people on my team. It was on me. I should have threw that you know, that curveball faster. I should have just juked a little bit and made that touchdown. You know, if I, if I, if I just would have nodded and came over with a right cross, could have knocked the guy out. Like I would analyze everything that I did wrong. Yeah. Um, and the manic moments, to be honest with you, man, the pure hell, I mean, the, um, the down moments were pure hell. It's like everybody gets sad, you know, and, and everybody, has their up moments where they're, they're going and they're happy and everything, everything in life is like great. Like nobody can bring you down. Yeah. But when I went down to those down moments, I wouldn't want to get out of bed. I wouldn't want to shower. I wouldn't want to brush my teeth. I wouldn't want to talk to anybody on the phone and my mind would, would start racing. And, um, I would go over the last 10 years of my life about all the disappointment, putting things I've done and why, why I'm such a piece of shit. And, and um, why I don't, I don't deserve to be here or my kids deserve a better father and my, my wife deserves a better husband. You go into this deep analyzation of your life and um, you blame yourself for every single thing. And it puts you in a state of, of not wanting to live. Um, everybody gets happy and everybody gets sad. But, but my happiness is I'm at the top of the mountain and I'm fucking yodeling and, and <laughs> my, my, my my down is I, I'm not in the valley. I'm like 20 miles down into the ocean, holding my breath, trying to survive. It's it's bittersweet in a way because I I know exactly how that is being bipolar as well, and you explained it so perfectly. Like it's funny too when you're manic, people love it because they think you're just like that's how you're supposed to be, and then you're like deep down, you're like I'm gonna crash in about two days. <laughs> like you <laughs> you don't, you're not gonna like that part. <laughs> Yeah, well, a perfect example. Dude, a couple of years ago, my, my my wife's father passed away, and we had to go to the house. And her brother and, and sis, my sister in law, came to the house. They live in Maine, and they stayed with us for the week. And we had to clean out the house, and for like six days, 
I was up at like 5 a.m. And I went hard for 12 hours, all six days in a row. And we cleaned out the entire house within one week. And I remember my sister-in-law, she was like, are you on something? And I'm like, no, why? What's going on? She's like, you're like going 100 miles an hour. Did you drink coffee this morning? I'm like, no, we just got to get it all done. Like, we, we got no, not time to spare. Like, we got to get this all done. We got to get it packed up. We got to call the junk guy. We got to get the, you know, I was yeah. just going. And as soon as they left and all that was over, dude, I slept for like four days straight, called out of work. I didn't want to go do anything. Um, I kind of got used to that for a while. Yeah. And being on medicine now that actually works and I'm not going to have drugs and alcohol in my system, I can kind of feel it when it's coming a little bit. Yep. And I utilize that by going to the gym or maybe doing something around the house that I, I've been neglecting for a while, and like home improvements. But to be fair, I'm a carpenter and I really don't want to come home after work and, and pick up a hammer for another four hours and not get paid for it. So, yep. but I, I, and I can feel it now. It's almost like, um, for me, it was almost like when I used to take pills and after 15, 20 minutes, you get that, 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 that feeling that comes over you and you're like, okay, it's time to go. I can almost feel that coming on now and yeah. I'm able to talk to myself. Okay. I know what's about to happen. Let's go do something before my mind starts going crazy. You wear a lot of titles, my friend, and one of them is a UMS Marine. That kind of sticks out. How long were you a Marine for? When did that start? And let's talk about that experience a little bit. Yeah, so um, you know, in high school, uh, right before my senior year, dude, I, I knew my grades were not good enough to go into college. Um, it just wasn't happening. Um, and a lot of my friends that I was hanging out with the summer before senior year started getting into hard drugs, and I'm like, man, I really don't want to get on that road. I, I can't go into college, and. Uh, my brother and my father and both my grandfathers were all in the military. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, that's what I'm doing. I, that will keep me good for the next four years, you know, because I was kind of lost. What am I going to do now? I was always, I had to associate myself with something as far as a title, you know, um, running back, boxer, um, almost professional skateboarder for a while, you know, and, and the high school is coming. Now what am I going to be? You know, I got to do something. So I decided to join the Marine Corps the summer before senior year. So I knew once I graduated, I had about a month off of summer and then I was going into boot camp and um, getting to boot camp. That went great. Get stationed at my my uh, MOS school down in Camp Geiger, North Carolina, finished that. And then I got sta stationed at Camp Lejeune. But that is when my my alcoholism really took off because at four o'clock when we got done whatever we were doing for the day, whether it was training or whatever have you, a bunch of us will leave the, the base and go to the bars. And the motto around the bases were, if you're old enough to take a bullet for the country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. So 18, 19, 20 years old, we had no problems getting served at these bars. And we would see our sergeants at these same damn bars, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And they would just say, don't get into a fight, don't get arrested, make sure you're ass up at 3.30 in the morning at formation at 4 o'clock. Other than that, have fun. Yeah. So there was no deterrent as far as, oh, you guys are underage. You shouldn't be here. It was almost a badge of honor to see how, how much we could party and then still work our ass off during the day. And, um, that went on. I was in the Marine Corps for two and a half years. And the reason I didn't finish the four was I actually ended up breaking my ankle three times, um, in the service. And the last one when I broke it, um, they, they were like, uh, you can't, I was at 0311 infantry. They're like, you, you can't, you're not equipped to be a infantry, you know, um, grunt anymore. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be anything else. This is what I joined up for me. I, I want to be a grunt. Like, nah, well, we can put you on another, another MOS. And I was like, nah. And I, it, it kind of affected me mentally. Yeah. Um, six months prior to that, we ended up going to Somalia for a couple months for training. Now there was no war going on. I'm not a combat veteran, but we went there for training and I, I saw what the ramifications of war did to a third world country. And I didn't think it affected me. But once they told me I couldn't be a Marine anymore, basically, I, I got I got severely depressed because I wasn't on medicine in the military. They had no idea I had bipolar disorder or else I would not have been able to join the military. You know, that was something that I, I didn't enclose when I joined and signed the papers. Right. So when they said I couldn't be a Marine anymore, you know, for me, I'm, I'm losing my identity. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm not finishing. I got to come out after two and a half years. I can't finish my four year enlistment. Um, 
and I just started getting really depressed. And I was like, you know what? I, I can't do this. You know, I don't want to change MOSs. Just let me out. And so what they ended up doing was they gave me honorable discharge and I was able to come home and I actually had a year and a half of the Montgomery job bill saved up. And I went to college for about seven, eight months when I came home and I didn't finish that either. I kind of just went because it was free money and, and the college was paid for and I earned it. Um, but I love the Marines, man. And, you know, that first month coming home was kind of actually pretty cool because I didn't have to get up at fucking 3.30 in the morning. I didn't have to have my hair combed or cut and I didn't have to shave every day. And yeah. I didn't have to go running five miles. But that second month came and I got that, oh, shit, um, I got to get a job. Um, I don't have a vehicle. I'm moved back in my mom's house. You know, I'm 20, 21 year old man and living back at mommy's house. I'm back in my bedroom from high school and I kind of started to feel like a loser. And that third month hit me and that's when I fell into a, a really bad deep depression so much where um, I didn't leave my bedroom. I was drinking every day, started smoking pot again because now I don't have uh, any drug tests. Mm -hmm. And I was calling my buddies up for pain pills whenever they could get a hand on them. So I was taking some of them and, you know, I'm sitting in my bedroom one day and uh, I go into my father's armor and I grab his gun and I sit it on my lap. And I'm sitting there, I'm looking at it, I'm contemplating using it. And luckily, I had a girlfriend, and I called her. I said, hey, something's not right. I'm sitting here standing at a damn gun on my lap. And she was at my house in like five minutes, and she took it from me. My mom came home that evening, and I said, mom, something, something's off. I'm, uh, you know, I didn't tell her I just had my stepfather's gun on my lap. She would have yeah. freaked the hell out and had me committed and the whole deal. But what she did do was she's like, okay, we're going to call the doctors and see what's going on. And Going through the doctors and, and they ran me through a whole bunch of tests again and they confirmed, yeah, you have bipolar one manic, manic depressant disorder. Now this is, uh, 95. So they still called it manic depressant disorder, bipolar one, two. And I, I think, I think it's a little different now. Um, so the first thing was to put no medicines. And I, the reason I'm bringing that up is because I don't care who you are or what you're diagnosed with medically, physically, you know, whatever. Be honest with your doctors. If they're about to put you on some type of medicine for your heart or your liver, your kidneys or your mental mental illness, let them know if you're drinking or drugging. Let them know what's going on because what they're about to put you on is not going to work if you have drugs and alcohol in your system. And that was something that happened to me for most of my life. I, and I was never honest. So they never could find the milligrams that worked. They never could find the two or three drugs, a cocktail that would work. So for 20 plus years, I would be on and off medicines, different medicines, different cocktails, different milligrams. And when I would go back for the, uh, you know, the updates, how are you feeling today? Nothing's working, doctor. I don't understand. You know, heaven forbid, it couldn't be the drugs and alcohol. It's got to be the medicine that you guys are putting me on because nothing's working. I'm actually worse. So if they're if going to put you on medicine, be honest with them because they're not designed to, to work with drugs and alcohol in your system. No, not at all. And that's, uh, that's a big thing too. It's like a lot of doctors misdiagnose, but it's like a 50, 50 split. It's like, you have to be very honest with what you're doing. So they know what they're doing. They're doctors. So you got to give the hundred percent as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. And a lot of it had to do with, I was ashamed and embarrassed and I didn't want to admit to myself that I was a, a drug and alcoholic. So that's something that I think a lot of us don't, or not able to get over. Um, and that's why we, we get stuck in our addiction for so long. You know, I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want nobody to find out when in the long run, everybody fucking knows except for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did, um, did the military, like, this might be a dumb question. Did it hurt or help your mental health? Cause it seemed like you wanted to do what you wanted to do and serve the country, but it, did it like affect you in any way as well? Um, 50 50 because like um again when i graduated my boot camp um i graduated top five in my class i was the company guide so when you're in when you're in boot camp you have um squad leaders you have first second and third uh squad leaders okay and they're so when you line up in formation you have we had that 82 of us and you had four rows times 20 so there's 20 person in each row mm -hmm. the the gentleman in the front of each row is your squad leader okay and he's the top of that row and then you have a guy called a uh he's called a guide and he's the guy that you see that actually holds the flag that walks in front of the formation he's in charge of the four squad leaders so it's like the supervisor 
and, and or the, the president and then the four supervisors, then your employees. Yep. Well, I graduated as the company guide. So I was actually in charge of three platoons. And I couldn't just be the guy. I was also the guy in my platoon, but when we went to graduate, they're like, we want you to be the company guide for um for graduation and represent all three platoons. You know, so manic wise, dude, I was able to get up at three o'clock in the morning. I was able to go till nine o'clock at night. There was no downtime in, in boot camp. There was no downtime in training. So that really helped me. When all that was over and we got stationed into, into the fleet marines when you're done all your school, it's called you're in the fleet marine. And I had all that downtime. That's when my drinking got bad. That's when I, I didn't have to be up all the time. And that's when I think the start of my demise started to come down because I was drinking so heavily and I didn't have to be you go, go, go at a, at a moment's drop. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it helped me. And then it ultimately took me out. So you talked about this a minute ago too. You bet you battled alcohol and drug addiction. You're sober now. When did it actually start? And when did you realize it was a problem? Was it, t- was it when you had that gun in your possession? No, that wasn't my bottom. No, that was just the beginning of many bottoms. Um, that wasn't even for me. That was just something that happened. And you know you what know, it is too? It's like, I laugh at that, but like, we know how that is. It's like when we're down and out, it's not funny, but it is when you look back on it, especially when you're doing such a great job like yourself and helping other people. Again, I'm not laughing at you. I just, yeah. it's one of those things that you just have to laugh about a little bit because you're, you're doing so well. And, and you look back and like, I look back on my time, like when I was super depressed and I am proud and, and I feel like you're very proud of yourself too. I can just feel yeah. that off you. Oh man, I, I have to remind myself um, of how far I've come sometimes. Um, I don't, I don't think I give myself enough credit to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I just, for me, it's just something that I have to do. And I feel as if this is what I'm meant to do. Um, and I kind of forget about all the hell that I went through, but you know, no, it's that, that was just one of many times that unfortunately, um, I thought about suicide and in my thirties, <clears throat> I, I lost another job. And that's one thing I went through many, many jobs with this drug and alcoholism and bipolar disorder. Um, matter of fact, since being out of the Marine Corps, I have gone through 46 employments and I'm 46 years old. So technically I, I should have been working since I was one, one a year. Your W-2 form must be a nightmare. Dude, it's it's insane. A good thing the last 11 years I've worked for myself. So um, perfect. But, but many different contractors. You know what I mean? They would last a year, eight months. I go on to the next one and just, so luckily I've been in the same field for the last 20 years, but a lot of different companies I've worked for. Yeah. But in my thirties, you know, I ended up losing this job again. And my wife's like, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. I I just don't want to work. You know, I was at that point. I don't want to work. I don't want to have, I would get anxiety knowing that I had to get up at four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning and be somewhere at a certain time. And if I didn't punch in a couple minutes, you know, before my, my time was supposed to start, I would get yelled at. You're going to yell at me because I'm a minute past six o'clock in the morning. Like I would take that personally. And, um, I was like, I don't know. I just really miss competing. I really miss sports. I really, like, I don't have a feel like I have any self confidence. She said, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want, I want to fight again. You know, I'm 32 years old. I'm not getting any younger. I just want to give it a go, see what happens. Bless her heart, man. She's like, I'll give you a year. She's like, you're collecting unemployment. Our bills are paid. You get one year. If at the end of one year, you can't make anything of this. If you cannot make any money, nothing's going on. You got to let the shit go. We got two girls now. You got to get back to get a job and, and enough's enough. I don't want to hear any more of it. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Not too many people get that opportunity. Yeah. So uh go to go to a local gym down here. Six months in, I get my first fight. That one year ended up being three years from the age of 32 to 35. I fought Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, um, Virginia, Baltimore, uh, New Jersey. And uh, I wasn't making that much money. I was making like fifteen hundred dollars a fight. But I got my self-confidence back. I got my self-esteem back. I felt good. I was back in the gym. I was working out. Um, there's something about competing one-on-one that just made me made me feel like almost like a God complex almost. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, kind of made me feel like I was back in the Marines. You know what I mean? Because the Marines make you feel like you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Like nothing can stop you. And that's what I felt like again in my 30s. And I go to my last fight. 
and I end up tearing my, my rotator cuff in three spots in the fight. And I get out of the fight and I can't put my shirt on. My trainer had to help me put my shirt on. I get out to the casino and I got like 30 family and friends there. And my wife goes to hand me a beer and I couldn't lift my arm. She's like, what's wrong? I say, I don't know. I did something to my shoulder. She's like, that's it. You're done. She's like, you're 35. You had fun. That's it. Now we got to go to goddamn doctor and see what's going on. Yeah. Go to the doctor next week. He's like, yeah, you tore your labrum in three places. You have to have rotator cuff surgery like immediately. So I had a, had a major surgery and that started a four year prescribed prescription addiction to opioids. Yeah, um, man. That's like the biggest problem when it comes to pain pills. Yeah. And we're talking, you know, I'm 35, I'm 46. So that's 11 years ago. And um, I could just, I just had to go to my local doctor every 30, 60 days, however long his prescription was and go back and fill out a simple form. Um, circle here where it hurts. No, oh, no pain. 10. Okay. Boom. Here's a prescription. There was no pain management clinic. There was no kind of deterrence. I'm glad they've changed it a lot now. Um, but 10 years ago, I mean, I just go back and, and it started out, uh, hydrocodones yep. 30 days. I go back. How are you feeling? Hydrocodones aren't really working. Okay, well, we'll put you on uh, perp tens. Okay, go back after sixty days or whatever. How are they working? The perp tens work really good, but my stomach's all jacked up. They gave me knots and this, that, and the other. Okay, we're gonna put you on this new medicine that it's not addictive. They're called oxycontins, and you can just stop them anytime you want. And we're gonna put you on twenty milligrams. Now I'm like, great, sounds good. So that's what I ended up being on was twenty milligram oxys. And um, on top of that, I'm drinking twelve beers a day. I'm smoking. Uh, eighth, sometimes a quarter a pot a day. So that was my little trifecta. I was, yeah. I was feeling good, man. I had my my bud, my beer, and my oxys. And it literally got to the point where, you know, I'm not taking one every four hours. I'm taking two to three every four hours. Running out of my prescription two weeks before the doctor has to fill it. So now I got to call my buddies to get me something off the street to hold me over until I get my script filled. And I, I remember sitting in my bedroom one day and I'm like, man, I'm taking eight to 10, 20 milligrams of oxys. I'm drinking 12, 18 beers a day sometimes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fucking die one night. You know, I'm going to go to sleep one night and I'm going to die. And, um, you know, it's funny how your your addiction manipulates your thoughts. And it was like, well, if you're going to die, you might as well fucking do it now and get it over with. And I've reached over and I, I grabbed my pill bottle and I had, I dumped that on my hand. I had 18 uh, 18 oxys and I took all 18 of them in a shot and I go into my living room and I crack open a 12 pack of beer and I slam all 12 of them within like 45 minutes and I go into my bedroom and I remember saying please God don't let me wake up because I don't want to live this way anymore and I just want the pain to stop and I pass out and um, I wake up the next day like 18 hours later I remember it was the evening time the next day and I remember the first thought I remember when I woke up was, holy shit, I didn't die. The second thought I thought of was to get up and go into the bathroom, grab my refill, and I dumped it all out into the toilet. I, I don't know how I had that thought, but I did. And I'm so glad I did. And I remember looking myself in the mirror and I said, this is going to get bad. But remember this feeling. We're never taking pain medicine ever again. And for the next 10 days was pure living hell. Um, the night sweats, the night terrors, the insomnia, the throwing up, the going to the bathroom, the fevers. I felt like you know, a flu times 10 times COVID. Like um, it was awful. But I remember every day I would look myself in the mirror between the snot and the throwing up and the crying. And I would tell myself, remember how you feel. We're never doing this again. I was able to finally stop taking the pain pills. but. My drinking, I couldn't stop drinking. You know, I told myself, well, I, I can stop taking the pain pills. I still got my drinking. I still got my bud. So I'm still good. You know, I can still have something to calm me down. And I remember it was March 15th, 2017. I get in my truck and I'm like, I'm going to go for a ride. And um, I go through this park down here. It's a beautiful park where people go hiking and biking. And they, they throw their boat out and go fishing and picnicking. It's a really beautiful park down here. And I'm driving through the park and I get to this tree where um, 1996, my best friend at the age of 18, unfortunately, lost control of his vehicle and hit this tree and he lost his life. And he was my best friend. And I get to this tree where 
his parents had set up a, a picture of him on the tree and there's a visual like you can put flowers there still to this day it's still there yeah. and this is the you know march 16 2017 21 years after he died and i, and I stopped at the this train i'm like bill and i'm crying i'm like i'm lost man i don't know why i'm here you know I, I was able to stop taking the pain medicine but i can't stop drinking i don't know what my purpose is and to be honest with you i had no faith in the higher power at that point my my thought process at that point was if something created me and loved me so much why am i suffering so bad there couldn't possibly be something out there that would make me suffer this bad because if something really loved me, I shouldn't be going through this. Yeah. That was my mindset at the time. And I'm like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know my purpose. I don't know why I survived taking those pills. But if there's something else out there, please give me a sign. Let me know that I'm not alone, that there's something watching over me, that there's something else there because I just don't know what my, what I'm here for in life. I don't get it. And I leave. The, I go to leave the park, and I'm I'm crying, and I'm so I pull over to the side of the road, but I I can't pull over on the right side because there's park there's park cars going all the way down the street. So I had to pull over on the wrong side of the road, and I'm sitting there for like ten minutes. And I'm crying, and, and I'm like, uh, you know, trying to contemplate why the hell I survived and why I'm here. And this car pulls up in front of me, and because I'm on the wrong side of the road, our our hood the hood we're hood the hood now. And I watch this guy get out of his truck and I'm watching him. He opens up the back door and he gets his dog out and he's about to go walk across the street and uh, go by the water and walk his dog. And I'm watching this man and I'm like, man, that guy looks familiar. I couldn't place it. And finally, after like 30 seconds, maybe a minute, I'm like, holy shit. That's my best friend who died in 1996. It's his father. I hadn't seen this man since the day of my friend's funeral in 1996. Wow. And this is March 16, 2017. And I get out of my truck and I go over to him. I said, Mr. Bill, is that you? And he looks at me. He's like, Timmy, what are you doing here? What's wrong? And I fall to the curb and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm a drug addict. I'm an alcoholic. You know, I've, I've lost many jobs. Me and my wife are fighting. I'm a bad father. I'm going through this whole, all this gamut of why I pretty much hate myself and why I shouldn't be here. And he walks over to me and he sets his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Tim, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. My bags are packed in my truck. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. this morning to go down to Myrtle Beach for a family reunion. My wife came to me in a dream last night and told me to come here this morning at 10 a.m. to walk the dog. He said, I believe I was here to sent here to see you. And I look up at him and I'm like, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to send me a sign that I wasn't alone, that there was something else out there. And we hugged. And he told, tells me everything's going to be okay. And I get back in my truck and I'm leaving the park. And for about 10 minutes, I'm like, man, everything's going to be all right. That's going to be okay. There's something else out there. And just like that, my addiction steps in and says, you are absolutely right. Nothing is going to happen to you. You're being protected. Something watching over you. So you don't have to stop drinking. You don't have to stop smoking pot because you're going to be okay. For the next four years of my life, it's the most alcohol I've ever drank in my entire life from 2017 until the day I ended up going up into rehab, March 5th, 2021. Um, I was, I was killing myself. Yeah. Um, so I, I stopped drinking beer and switched over to the fireball whiskey for some reason. That was a great idea in my mind. Um, and it was funny because when I, when I, again, my addiction would tell me not to buy a big bottle. Because then I'd have to be accountable of how much liquor I was actually drinking. So my little ass would buy the, the little miniatures at the counter. Because you could drink them, throw them out the window while you're driving. You can hide them in your medicine cabinet, hide them in the sock drawer. Your wife doesn't know how much you're drinking. You forget how much you're drinking. So you can go back to the store and drink more because you really have lost count. Yeah. But um, it got to the point where I would stop in the morning at 7 a.m. before going to work. And I'd buy a sleeve of them. There's 10 of them in a sleeve. I'd finish all of them by 1 o'clock. I get off of work at 3.30, immediately go to the nearest liquor store and buy 10 more. I drink five of those before I even got home from work, finish those five by 8 o'clock and be back at the liquor store and buy another 10. Um, that last year of my drinking, I was drinking 25 to 30 miniatures of Fireball every single day. And one of those miniatures is two and a half shots. Yeah. So two and a half times 25 times 30, it, it could be, it's up where like 60 to sometimes 80 shots a day. I was, I was drinking that much every single day. Um, 
it got to the point where I had, I got a brand new truck. I wrecked it twice within two hours. Mm -hmm. My wife kicks me out of the home, says she doesn't want me around the kids. Um, go to my buddy's house and we go to the bar and as we're leaving, I rear end somebody and I'm like, man, I was like, I gotta be by myself. So I grab my stuff from his house and I go and I park my truck at a park and ride and, um, turn my phone off because I didn't want to hear from nobody. Yeah. I, I didn't want nobody to call me, nobody to bother me. I literally wanted to sit there and drink and pass out and, and just numb the pain of, of my existence. Cause it was, it was pretty shitty. I, I hated myself. And I sat there for two days and I drank and passed out and drank and passed out and listened to sad ass music. That was one thing I definitely did because I wanted to be have the whole big pity party me and I'm a big piece of shit. And, and after two days, man, March 5th of 2021, I turned my phone on at seven after 10 in the morning. And literally two minutes after having my phone on after two days of it being off, the phone rings. And I look down and it says Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I'm like, who the hell is calling me from Pennsylvania? Well, I pick it up and it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And he's like, lodging, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm drunk and I'm tired. And he says, good motherfucker, that's what you need. He's like, I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. He goes, I have a plane ticket ready for you tonight at eight o'clock. And I got you in the Banyan Treatment Centers down West Palm Beach, Florida. I want you to get on that plane and go get back to your life. And um, I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay, man. I'm just kind of agreeing with him so I can hang up the fucking phone, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay, 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 man. I hang up the phone. My wife calls like five minutes later. Hey, I just got the phone, Brandon. Can you please come home and take a shower, pack your bags, try to eat something and take a little nap? Because I had like four or five hours for the plane left. I'm like, okay, okay. So I go home, I take a shower, pack my bags. I couldn't eat and I couldn't take a nap. Dude, I'm, I'm in full panic mode attack. Uh, I had anxiety. I'm like, holy shit, my life is so bad. I got to go to treatment like in Florida. How long am I going for? He didn't tell me 30, 60, 90 days, six month program. Like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. And I'm, I'm freaking out and I'm, I'm just going through everything in my mind. And, um, you know, I'm trying to pinpoint why this happened, but I, I think. At this point, my addiction or, or and or my mental illness knew that if it didn't try one more time to take my life, that it was going to be it. And I was finally going to have my, my life in order. So I'm sitting on the edge of the bed and I'm like, I can't do this. I can't go. I don't know how I got my life this bad. And um, my, my mental illness and my addiction says, come with me and it grabs my hand and it walks me to the basement of my home. And I throw a rope around my neck. And I stand up on a bucket in my home where my kids are, and I put the rope around my neck, and it's telling me to jump, to end the pain, to end the pain. And I listen, man, and I, and I go into the base of my home, and I throw that rope around my neck, and I stand up on that bucket, and I just wanted the pain to end, man. I, that's all I wanted was the pain to go away because I didn't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to stop drinking. I didn't know that getting help existed. I literally thought I was destined to die from this disease of alcoholism, drug addiction, and mental illness. And um, my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom anymore. And she comes down to the basement. And she sees me in our home, in the corner of our basement, with a rope around my neck, hysterically crying, like barely standing on this bucket. And she says, what are you doing? I said, I can't do it. I can't get on that plane. I just want the pain to stop. And she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this will do to your little girls? Please, please get off of that bucket and get on that plane. Get on that plane and everything is going to be okay. I get off the bucket and I fall to the floor and I cry for about five minutes. And um, I call Brandon. I'm like, hey, buddy, um, I got to go, man. I got to get on that plane tonight. If I don't get on that plane tonight, this disease is going to kill me. And all he says is, I'm proud of you, and I love you. Please call me when you pass security, though, because I want to make sure your ass is getting on that plane. I said, okay. A couple hours later, my mom picks me up, takes me to the airport. I get past security. And I call him and say, hey, Brandon, um, I got 35 minutes till the plane leaves. Just want to let you know I'm, I'm all packed in. I'm all booked in. I'm waiting for them to board. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything that you've ever lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. What happened to me next was 
most amazing thing that ever happened to me as I go sit down at this chair in this airport waiting for them to call my plane. As I sit down at this seat, this overwhelming feeling of hope engulfs my entire body. It was the same warm blanket feeling that pain pills used to give me, that that 12th beer used to give me, that overwhelming hotness feeling that come over my entire body. I was tingling all over my body, except this time my worry went away, my doubt went away, my fear, my anxiety. Everything leaped, just left my body all at once. And I hear this woman's voice that I've never heard in my entire life before or since. And she simply says in a very calming manner, everything is going to be okay. Something happened to me in that airport because at that exact moment, I got calm and I knew finally at the age of 44 years old, I was finally going to get the help I needed to save my life. I truly believe I had a spiritual experience in that airport. And um, it was so profound that I knew that I had to do something with this, that I couldn't let this go to waste. I had to, I had to share my story and let other people know that we're not, you know, they're not alone. We are a lot of people that know exactly what you feel like. You've done uh, something that I haven't done on this podcast yet on an interview is make me tear up. That was a powerful story, my friend. And, uh, I, and another thing too, is when someone like Brandon Novak tells you to go get help, you go get help. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, Two years prior to that, he actually came to my house and tried to get me to go to treatment. Oh, really? And, and, yeah. And uh, I'm sitting across from him at my kitchen table and I'm drinking a beer. I'm like, I don't need to go, dude. I'm only drinking six to 12 a day. I'm good. Yeah. He's like, I can get you on that plane right now. I'm like, nah, man. He only had about two years sober at the time. And I'm like, no, I'm good, man. I'm good. He's like, okay. I'm just letting you know. Whenever you need help, you let me know. And for the last couple of years before I got actually that phone call made, he would call me every six months or call my wife or call my, my oldest daughter behind my back and check, how's, how's your dad doing? How, how's Tim doing? And he would, you know, he would check up on me. And um, the fact that I hadn't talked to him in two years, and then he just happened to call me two minutes after not having my phone on for two days. I stopped believing in coincidences yep. that first week when I got sober. You know, when I got to rehab, man, they, they did all my, my vitals and my physical and he, he brings me in. He's like, how old are you? I'm like, I'm 44. He's like, well, your blood pressure is 167 over 145. You're on the verge of having a stroke. He's like, your liver and kidneys um, are four times the enzymes in a healthy human being. He's like, if you would not have come in this month, he's like, and you continue to drink, even if you stop drinking in the next two to three months, he said the, the damage to your kidneys would have been irreversible. And you ended up dying by cirrhosis of the liver within the next three years. You wouldn't have made it to the age of 47. I, I that's the timing on how everything worked. It's, it's un, unmistakable that this was supposed to happen to me. Um, that 27 years didn't happen to me, brother. It happened for me. Yeah. I had to understand what living in hell truly was on, on earth for me to appreciate that, to be honest with you, this is heaven, man. And we're experiencing great gifts of, of life every single day. And I took it all for granted. I, I truly did. I love seeing a comeback story. Everyone loves a comeback story. Yeah. Now, um, I'm a miracle brother and um I want people to understand that we're all miracles. Yep. You know the the eyes that you and I were born is one in 400 trillion. I don't know if you know that. No. We all want we all have all already won the lottery. What are we doing with it? What are some words of inspiration you would give someone battling addiction? I feel like you'd be really good at this. <laughs> to be honest with you, man, um and I know it, some people are going to be like, "Oh, you can't just say that," but I lost hope. And it nearly took my life. If I can tell somebody out there who's struggling with that is um, hold on to hope as much as you can. I know it's a cliche. Oh, don't lose hope. And it's, and, and to be honest with you, man, it's really hard not to lose hope sometimes. And I'm, yeah. But in the back of my mind, I always knew I had a greater purpose. I always knew that I was here for a reason. We all have a purpose. We all have a reason to be here. Don't lose hope because one day 
you will be lucky enough to understand and find that purpose and be able to reach people. Um, whether it's just being a great father or a great husband, um, maybe, maybe it's just the one person that you randomly meet that just needs to tell them that you love them or you're proud of them or everything's going to be okay. That could change somebody's life. Yeah. Um, you know, it's don't lose hope. Don't give up. We can recover. We're not alone. There's so many more of us out there dealing with something every single day. Some of us hide it. Some of us don't talk about it. And some of us turn to addiction. And unfortunately, some of us commit suicide. Yeah. Don't be ashamed. You're not a burden. Speak up. Speak out. Ask for help. Um, It's okay to not be okay sometimes, man. And, um, takes more courage to admit that than it does holding it in when you ever go out um you might deal with this question all the time like say you go out to like a like a party or whatever and someone offers you a drink and you're like no i'm, I'm good and they go is like why aren't you drinking like it's like i just don't want to drink or like i have my own issue like not my own issues but i have my own reasons do you deal with that still is that frustrating when people offer you things i actually don't deal with that no really yeah. Um, I think because I'm so out there, everybody knows what I'm doing. That's true. That's nobody, true. nobody brings it up to me. Now I did deal with it my first four months sober. So I got out in March. I got out in April, July. My buddy, my one of my Marine Corps buddies that I grew with, uh, graduated boot camp with had a fourth of July party. And he's like, come on, man. I haven't seen you in a year or two. You know, you're sober now. It'd be great to see you. And uh, another one of my brothers that I graduated boot camp in um, drove down from Michigan. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. He said, come on, man, it'll be a good reunion. We can see each other. And I get to the party. And I'm not even there one minute. And my, my brother from boot camp literally sees me, turns around, puts his hand in the cooler and brings up this fucking cold as shit beer. I could see the steam coming off. It's so cold. And he goes to hand it to me. And I look at him, I'm like, man, I'm like, I don't drink, man. He's like, oh, shit, I forgot. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm like, no worries. I said, but I'm not going to lie to you. That fucking looks delicious right now. I said, because it looks so cold. It was a coarse light. The mountains were blue. I was like, man, I bet you that probably tastes great. I was like, but I can't do it, man. And, and then he put it back and gave me a water. That's That has been the only time in uh, 21 and a half months that anybody's tried to offer me alcohol that's awesome that goes to show there are awesome people out there especially friends you know what i mean they're always supporting you and stuff so that's always a good thing when you have like a a circle of friends circle of trust that can like keep you positive and keep pushing you in the right way so that's that's really nice to hear it is and and, um and if somebody does ask me I, i tell them the truth yeah and you would be surprised of how many people pull you off to the side, not in front of anybody else. And I have a family member that's dealing with alcoholism or drug addiction, or, you know, my mom and dad dealt with it for so long. How did you, how do we get them help? How do we do this? How do we do that? It's, I don't, I don't hide it. You know, I I went on a job interview three months ago in my job interview. I said, Hey, I got, I'm coming up on 19 months sober. You know, I, I, I travel the United States. I speak for nonprofits. I do podcasts literally at the end of the, I got the job. Literally at the end of, end of the interview, the guy that runs the place says, hey, you got a minute? And pulls me into his office. He said, I don't want to say anything at the interview because it was me and three other guys. He said, but I'm dealing with it with a family member. How do we get him in treatment? Guess what? The dude's family member's in treatment. He's got like one week left. He's been there almost 30 days. You know what I mean? So I don't hide it, man, because you never know who you're talking to. Yep. It's listening. They might need to hear what you're going through in your story. It might They might help somebody. And that's what I... That's what I truly believe my purpose is now is to help as many people as possible who are suffering with mental illness and addiction. I really do. Yep. Uh, this is um, a question I wanted to ask, and this is for people that are sober and stuff. What is your thoughts on like marijuana for mental health or like microdosing and stuff like that? Because that is on the fine line of of like, because people can say like weed is is or isn't a gateway drug. I can listen to both sides of that. I, I don't I don't get upset about that that conversation. But what is your take on something like that? <laughs> Okay, so I was big into weed, man. Uh, it was one of my big things. I actually had a, a cannabis 
store in Washington, D.C. for two years. I got stuff in California, Colorado. I, I was I was really big into You're it. about it. Oh, yeah. I lived that life. And um, for me, I would tell myself, well, it, if my stomach's upset, I, I you know smoke some flour and it takes away my nausea. If I have a headache, it takes away my headache. Um, if I was an if I was achy, I would I would smoke something with CBD or CBN in it, and some tetracycline to help me sleep at night. Like I knew all everything about it, and um, it does. Uh, okay, it works. Okay, if that's part of your program. And it keeps you off of heroin. Um, it keeps you off of the meth or it keeps you from robbing somebody at the corner store with a gun and keeps you out of jail. And um, that's part of your program and it works for you. Who am I to say any different? For me, I know I'm, my, my wife smokes. She's got her card here in Maryland. It doesn't bother me. For me, if I know if I if I roll a joint or I pack a bowl or I go take a, a fucking dab of some really nice shatter, give me a week or two, bro, and I'm back at that liquor store. Yeah. So um, I chose complete abstinence. Um, Good. Just because I, I know myself, man. I I, I don't want to dabble in that water anymore, man. I really don't. Um, it's all or nothing for me. And it's funny because that's how I've been all my life. So if I was going to drink, I'm drinking all 12 of those beers. Why do I buy a 12-pack unless I'm drinking all 12 of them? You know what I mean? If I give me that pill bottle, that shit's going to be gone in two weeks, not a month. So if I'm going to do sobriety, I'm doing it 100%. Yeah, I was going to say that, 100% or nothing. And you said it perfectly because some medications doesn't work for people. So something like marijuana might not work for somebody else. Like I was put on Lexapro for a little bit and that was awful for me. And then I got put on um, Lamictal, which works great for me and somebody else that might not work for somebody. And I I stress that a lot where I I talk about the medications I take, but I I stress, I'm like, this works for me. That might not work for you. So that's a, that's a great way of putting it with the marijuana take. Not only that, but perfect example. I was on Lamictal for years and it didn't work for me. Guess what I'm on now? Lexapro. Lexapro. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and it works great. I'm on Lexapro and Seroquel, 100 milligrams at night for psychotic episodes. Uh, yeah. I guess, the, you know, whatever. It helps me sleep. It keeps my mind from racing at night. I don't have, I don't wake up um, with songs playing in my head or thinking about what I have to do for the rest of the week. I, I sleep all night. And I'm only on five milligrams of Lexapro, which is the lowest dosage they could give you. And at this point, I don't even know if it's fucking placebo or if it's Lexapro, but yeah. to me, it works. To me, it works. Yep. That's all it needs to do. It just needs to work. That is so ironically funny. I love that so much. I'm glad that we're both doing good. Uh, what I wanted to ask you, too, is go back in time, and it's the Tim that's uh, with the gun. What would you say to him to to help him? Are you are you going there just kicking his ass, or are you, you giving him some positive uh, affirmations? What, what are you doing to him? The truth? Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered. Wouldn't matter if I kicked his ass. Wouldn't matter if I told him the truth. Wouldn't matter if I gave him a glimpse into his future. That Tim wasn't ready to hear anything you had to fucking say. Yeah. And it didn't matter what you were going to say. It didn't matter what future you were going to tell me because the unfortunate truth about addiction is we can love you to death. We can drive you to the rehab center. We can book all your appointments. We can get, we can take you to the train or the airport and get you on that plane, walk you through the fucking front door and unpack your bags. But unless you yourself are ready to accept the gift of healing and sobriety and recovery, I can talk to you until the cows come home. It's not going to resonate with you. Yeah. And I wish, I wish it was, I wish it was different. I really do. I wish I could magically hug somebody and whisper, everything's going to be okay. Just trust me and, and actually listen. Um, but we both know, man, that's not how recovery works. I finally got sick and tired of being sick and tired and uh, I didn't want to die anymore. And I finally realized that it comes from within. Um, I can give all the advice in the world, but if you're not ready to hear what I'm saying, yeah, it, it's one in, one ear and out the other, man. Let's talk about your nonprofits. We brought those up uh, in passing. Let's start with our uh, rock star testimony. What, what is that one about? Yeah, so um, that was founded by um, Sandra Lee and Dusty Simmers. Um, two two women have dealt with uh, trauma and PTSD and, and substance abuse. And what it is is we bring awareness for mental health and um, um, 
addiction disorder. And it's a nonprofit. We raise money. Um, we help people um, talk to talk to therapists and get into treatment centers. And now we just launched uh, two and a half months ago. We have Zoom meetings Monday through Friday, um, specific times. If you go to their website, um, Love and Light to the world.org and you go and you pick free peer support monday might i forget who it is but monday could be the woman's mental health and superior peer uh support um, tuesday might be ptsd i host thursdays at 7 p.m eastern men's mental health and addiction advocacy and it's free to anybody you can just go and tap the zoom link put your name in and register and at 7 p.m eastern on zoom i open up it's an open men's meeting. Anybody can join. They don't have to talk. They can shut their video off. They can just listen. But it's a bunch of guys that get together and we talk about mental health and addiction and, and what we can do to change it and how we can help people. And it's, you know, it's a great cause. It's it's all free. And, and what what we like to say is, you know, the world is a dark place, right? One match. Can let another match, can let another match, can let another match, and ultimately we light up the world. So that's what we want to try to do is just reach one more person and light up their spirits, light up their world, and show them that there's a better, better life to live. You got me, you're giving me goosebumps over here, pal. I don't know. I, I like <laughs> your positivity and everything about you, man. You're you're a great dude. Um, I appreciate that. Thank you, man. No problem. And uh empower to recover. What what can we expect with them? So empower to recover at um they're based out of Canada. Um, that's ran by a gentleman by name Jay Bernard, and he does that pretty much the same thing in Canada. It's a nonprofit organization that brings awareness to mental health and, and addiction. Um, they're having their first summit this May in, Ontar in Ontario. Um, and I, I, as of now, I'm flying out there in May to speak um, to, to men and women about addiction and, and how how that, you know, it happens everywhere. There's no discrimination. Doesn't care what your bank account is. Doesn't matter skin color. Doesn't matter, you know, what car you're driving. Addiction doesn't give a shit about you. And it's coming from one thing, your life. And that's ultimately how it is. So we try to bring more awareness about that. Um, so whatever these guys call me and they say, Hey, we follow you on, on Instagram. We like what you're doing. Would you mind helping us or just mentioning us? Get our name out there. I always say yes. Yeah, because I never know if something I say about them that somebody might hear. Well, I'm in Canada. I can go get in touch with Empower to Empower. I can go reach out to Jay, and now that one person just just got got help from just because I mentioned his name. So as long as they're positive and they're legitimate and they're genuine, um, not trying to make money off of it or or trying to boost their name up in any way, I'm all for trying to help anybody as much as I can. Uh, where can people find you on Instagram and what can they expect on your page? So, um, well, before I do that, I'm actually a part of another nonprofit. Um, oh. the Over yeah, the Overwatch Collective. Um, this is ran by two former Marines. Um, and what they do is we bring awareness to military veterans and first responders, police, fire, and EMTs to help deal with the traumas of their professions. Um, and we bring mental illness and suicide prevention awareness because these jobs hold a lot of trauma, a lot more than normal people might see. Um, you know, fire and rescue, police, uh, military veterans would see a lot of death, unfortunately, in our, in our line of work. And we usually go to drugs and alcohol to numb that pain. And yep. there's a lot of high suicide rates with these jobs as well. So um, I just got back in California a month and a half ago, and I went down there and spoke with the veterans and first responders. And we were able to raise $65,000 to get veterans and first responders into therapy and also their spouses. Because unfortunately, we bring that work home with us and our spouses, unfortunately, go through the same, if not more trauma, having to deal with us who are not dealing with what we're going through. Um, so that's, that's one of my... My, my, that one I hold close to my heart, man, because, um, I got done speaking at that event and these military combat veterans come up to me with two, three tours. I'm le legitimate combat veterans that have taken people's lives and they're in tears and they're just telling me, thank you. I've been there. I've looked down the barrel of a gun and I almost took my life. Um, 
thank you for being so honest. Thank you for letting me know that it's something not to be ashamed of, that I'm not a burden on anybody, that I can reach out and talk to people. So um, it's a great organization. It's, it's ran by Jesse and Greg, and uh, they're a great group of guys. So and they're all on Instagram as well. And that's where you can find me mostly is on Instagram at T Lodgen. That's where I post all my, my podcasts, my interviews. I just had a nice article published um, in Sober Press Magazine that just came out a couple weeks ago. Did a nice little article about me. It was really nice. So I'm just trying to get out there, man, and just have my story listened to by one more person. One more person I can help is one less person we lose to this disease. Look where you came from, man. Like your story. This was has been like I've been like giddy the whole time just listening to your story. It's like a movie. So it's it's like um I just met you. Like we had our consultation. Like we chatted a little bit, and I consider you a friend now. I'm very proud of you of where you've come. Mm -hmm. I've, I'm proud of like you what you do with these nonprofits. That's like that's not easy work. What you do isn't easy. And if if it was easy, everyone would do it. So have to have someone like you do that it's it's very people are very grateful for that so i i do i tip my cap to you sir oh thank you and uh i'm gonna acknowledge that because uh this is so much more easier than living in hell brother yeah it is right. I, i'd rather i'd rather be wanted and needed than um be that guy that nobody wanted to talk to nobody want anything to do with my family would would scatter like cockroaches when I walked in the front door. Didn't want anything to do with me. Yeah. Now that, that that people acknowledge me that I exist and I can help others, man, it's it is a lot. I, I do have to do a lot. Um, this is like my fifth podcast this week. Um, I have another one tomorrow, but it's not work for me, man. This is what I have to do. This is what I want to do, and this is what I get to do. Damn right. What are you most proud of with yourself? Showing my kids that no matter how hard life gets, no matter how many times it knocks you down on your damn knees, as long as you keep getting up and fighting, anything that you want in life is possible. Um, my kids talk to me. They love me. They tell me how proud they am of me. That is my biggest accomplishment. Hell yeah, man. I love that. Let's end with this. I like to ask all my um, guests this question. What is your personal theme song? Like, th what would be the song? Like, you were an MMA fighter, boxer. Did you have a theme song, or would it be something different? What would your song be? Okay, so when I when I fought, I came out to Till I Collapse by Eminem. Yep. Okay, only because the beginnings of military and, and the marching. But um, now there, there's, there's a couple songs that I actually have on my gym playlist, and I'm not ashamed to say it, but uh, Unstoppable by Sia. Okay, yeah, I know that one. Dude, I love that song, and every time I hear it, it gives me goosebumps. And um, th there, it used to be Destiny's Child, I believe, Survivor. Yep. Well, they're, they're a remake. Um, I have to send you a link, dude. It's badass the way they remade it. It's I'm a Survivor song. I think it's like Roa or something. Okay. Um, it's just everything I've been through. It just reminds me that no matter how deep and dark life gets, we can always rise up and, and become a shining light, man. You seem like a guy that most people wouldn't make fun of. So I, being an alpha <laughs> male, I wouldn't come to you and be like, yeah, what are you listening to that for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I, I think that's why I, I take a lot of people off guard a little bit too, because I'm supposed to be this, you know, Marine fighter. And I'm, right. Right. I'm, I'm training for a bodybuilding show coming this, this spring. And, and then I sit there and tell them about, you know, how I cry and, and I try to take my life and, and this, that. And I was like, what? I'm yeah. Like, yeah, man, it doesn't matter what you look like on the, in on the outside, brother. It's it's what comes from the inside. You never know what people are going through. And it's, su it's such a true statement. What are three things that you're grateful for today? This that's funny that you said that. I wake up every morning and I, and I list five things that I'm grateful for. I want to hear five. I want to hear five. Now you're going to be the first one to give me five. I'm grateful to have another opportunity at this day. I'm grateful to experience any emotions that may come my way today. I'm grateful to have the tools to be able to um, deal with anything that happens this day. I'm grateful to be able to experience my children and my wife for one more day. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to reach one more person today. Damn right. That's perfect. You First, Tim, five grateful things. This has been, you made me cry. This has been a great interview, my friend. Now, my last question. How does it feel to be John Hamm's body double? You know what, man? Uh, he needs to fucking pay me. 
that's what needs to happen next. I need some money in my bank account. Uh, I'll send them my cash app. I don't care, but uh, I need some funds. Christmas oh. is like three weeks away. Seriously, <laughs> we got to get you that job. <laughs> Tim Lodgen, thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been a great, great, great time. Thank you for having me, brother. I really appreciate it. Definitely. And that's another episode of 20 Tim Minutes. Let's break the stigma by cracking a smile. I will see you soon. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. If you are feeling suicidal, please dial 911.